If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open to um, Isaiah 6 and then maybe put a thumb marker or your little band in your Bible at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in both of those texts this morning together. Uh, we enter into a season of the year this morning, uh, historically known in the life of the church, known as Advent. Uh, the word Advent means arrival. And so historically in the life of the church, Advent's been a season in which the church has looked back upon Jesus' first arrival as he's born in a manger and he grows in wisdom, stature, and knowledge before God and man. And he grows up to be um, the the God-man who would teach and instruct and guide and who would ultimately be crucified and buried and raised. So we look back upon his first Advent, his first arrival, but we also look forward toward his second Advent or his second arrival in which he comes as not a baby in a manger, but a king who is crowned to rule. And so this, the season of Advent in the life of the church has been a looking backward and a looking forward. And here at Redeemer, we recognize that season of Advent because one of the things it helps us do is it helps us cut through some of the sentiment of Christmas. Because Christmas, the season of Christmas is filled with all sorts of sentiment, isn't it? It's filled with sentiment on greeting card shelves. As you walk through your favorite store, it has a whole line of greeting cards to choose from. It's filled with sentiment as people talk about kind of some impersonal Christmas spirit that floats around out there. Get into the spirit of Christmas. Right? It's filled with sentiment of white snowflakes or family or friends. The sentiment of a fat man in a red suit who's very jolly and has lots of short friends with pointy ears. It's filled with all kinds of sentiment, with one horse open sleighs and jingle bells dashing through the snow and over the river and through the woods, right? It's filled with all sorts of sentiment about uh, where you go, what you eat, the fireplaces, tags, wrappings, tinsels, trimmings, mistletoe, and lights. Some of you are hanging those today, right? So it's filled with all sorts of sentiment. This season is filled with all kinds of sentiment, with fireplaces and roasting chestnuts, But what Advent does is it helps us cut through some of that sentiment. Because sentiment, see the problem with sentiment is that it will warm your heart, but sentiment will never change your heart. You can have a very sentimental Christmas and it'll be heartwarming, but it will never really change anything internally for you. And so we celebrate Advent here at Redeemer because we want to look back upon the arrival of Jesus into the world and what he's come to do. Not just the fact that he has come, but what he has come for and who he has come as. Because Christmas, while we may celebrate it with lots of greeting cards and frosted windows, not here in Texas really, but you may celebrate it with all kinds of things, all kinds of sentiment, What will really change your heart is to see the meaning of Christmas. It is about long-awaited promises and prophecies that God fulfills in a person, in His Son, in the arrival of the one through whom all things were created. Everything that exists, He brought into being. Of Of the one who was promised to crush the head of the serpent of the, the, the long-awaited prophet who would speak the word of God truly and with authority, of the long-awaited priest who would forever mediate this relationship between God and man, of the long-awaited king who would rule with justice and gentleness, of this long-awaited rescuer who would come to impale the enemies of Satan's sin and death and to rescue his people 
and gather them to Himself. The long-awaited Word of the Father who now in flesh has appeared. Light of true light has dawned into the world. The necessary substitute will live a perfect life and die in our place and rise from the grave. This is why we celebrate Advent at Redeemer and we think about Advent at Redeemer looking back upon Jesus for arrival and forward toward His second so that we don't miss Jesus at Christmas because of all the sentiment. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at who Jesus is, that He is. He is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to His people throughout the Bible. And listen, promises are made and kept in all sorts of relationships, aren't they? They're made and kept in, all, they're made and kept in friendships, right? That you're going to be BFFs. Like best friends forever. I can remember before that was actually a term. Okay? And I can remember I was up in my parents' attic over the, over the, over the Thanksgiving um, getting some of the stuff they no longer wanted to keep for me up there. And as I was pulling it down, I, found, I saw a box up there that was labeled yearbooks. And I can remember getting yearbooks every year at the end of the school year. And you would take them around and you would, first of all, you open up to see where your picture was in the yearbook, right? Um, you got to find all the places you were located. You look for your name in the index and you go to all those pages to see how they captured you. But the next thing that you did was you took your yearbook around to the people who you had been friends with that year and they all signed it. And they all signed it with things like friends forever. Like, I don't know about you, but... My third grade yearbook, I don't know where those people are or what they are doing. Right? We made promises to each other that we would always stay connected and we're not connected any longer. Promises are made and kept and broken in the context of friendships. They're made and kept and broken in the context of family and even in the most intimate and enduring of relationships in marriage. But one of the common threads for all of us who have experienced what it's like to be human is to have a promise made to you and have that promise broken. Had that promise not kept. But see, one of the differences between us and God, Isaiah tells us that God's ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They're higher than ours. One of the ways in which God's ways are higher than ours is in the reality that while every man may be found to be a liar and an unfaithful promise breaker, God is always found to be true and a faithful promise keeper. Always without exception. And God's made promises to his people all throughout the Bible. He made promises to Abraham. He made promises to Moses. He made a promise and a covenant with David. He made a promise and a covenant with all the nation of Israel. And God has shown himself to be a faithful, true promise keeper at every step, at every turn, at every juncture, at every intersection of human history. God has shown himself to be faithful. In fact, God made a promise to David many, many, many years ago. David, right after David builds himself a nice palace in 1 Samuel chapter 7, David's sitting back and he's going, man, I live in a pretty pimping crib here, right? And God lives in a tent. So God, I've got this great idea. God, I'm going to build you a house, a magnificent house. It is going to be the house of all houses. And God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a line that would come after you. And he makes David a promise that there would always be one of his descendants who would be ruling and reigning on the throne over God's people. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah comes to tell us who, who that king would be. And he gives some designations to who that king would be that would forever rule over God's people. 
And so in Isaiah chapter 9, we find this text before us in verses 6 and 7. And listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah to his people about who this king that would reign forever and ever over God's people and over all of creation, what he would be like and who he would be. In Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah says the the king who was promised to David back in 1 Samuel chapter 7 is going to be a child who would be born, a son who would be given and he would, on his shoulders would rest the government of his people. On his shoulder, of his, of, his, of, his, of his rule, of his reign, that would be characterized by peace and there will never be an end to it. It will ever be increasing. And then he goes on to give some designations about who this king would be, what his name would be called. And he gives four of them. He gives four of them. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at these names that designate this king who would come to rule over God's people forever. So that's where we're going to be headed for the next four weeks. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus is the only one who could fulfill what Isaiah prophesies here in Isaiah chapter 9, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the wonderful counselor, of the mighty God, of the everlasting Father, and of the Prince of Peace. See, Jesus' teaching and his wisdom, they're incomparable. He is, there is no, more, no counselor more wonderful than he. Jesus is one with the Father and he reveals the compassionate heart of the Father to us. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the one whose, work, whose life and his work has established peace where there was once hostility between us and God. And he's also paved the way for peace between men horizontally. And one day he will make sure that all peoples taste of his peace as he comes back to establish his kingdom forever. But this morning we take a look at the fact that Jesus is called here in Isaiah chapter 9, Mighty God. That's where we're going to start today. He's called Mighty God. That Jesus' might is unparalleled and he is as the eternal word of God who clothed himself in the flesh. He came to make his dwelling among us, to summon us and to save us. He calls us to himself and he claims us as his own. So this morning we take a look at Jesus being the mighty God. And there's several places in the New Testament we could go to see how Jesus fulfills this. Perhaps, in my humble opinion, there is none better than Colossians chapter 1. So if you've got a marker there, go ahead and turn over. And we're going to jump into Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
So for the time that we have left this morning, here's what I want us to see. I want us to see how Paul shows us that Jesus is God, but he's not only God, he is mighty God. All right? That Jesus is mighty God. And Paul shows us very clearly from Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that God makes to David in 1 Samuel 7 and to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. So let's get after it. The first thing that we need to see in this text this morning is this, is that Jesus is the God who made us. That Jesus is the God who made us. There's three places that you see this in Isaiah, in, in, I'm sorry, in Colossians chapter 1. You see it in verse 15, you see it in verse 19, and you see it in verse 16. In verse 15, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the definitive picture of God. He, in fact, he says it this way. In verse 15 we read, He is, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God. In other words, Paul says, Jesus makes the invisible God whom no one has ever seen, he makes him visible before our eyes. He is the icon. In fact, the Greek word there is the word translated icon. And it was used in other places in writings in the ancient world to describe the, 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 the coinage of the, ancient, of the ancient Roman Empire that was stamped with the image of the emperor. In the same way that our bills, our dollar bills are printed with the pictures of presidents or the coinage that we pass as currency in our nation are stamped with the heads of the presidents. So also in Paul's day, the coins of the Roman Empire were stamped with the, 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 the likeness of the emperor. And that's the exact same word, that icon, that was stamped on the coinage of the Roman Empire. It's the same word that Paul's using here to describe Jesus as the icon, the image of this God whom you have not seen, who has now revealed himself in a person. That Jesus is God. In fact, in, the, in, 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 in Jewish tradition, in order for this one who was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 not to be blasphemous, Right? For, a, for, a, for, for, for a, a person to be called God was blasphemous in the Jewish tradition. So this one whom God had promised, this child he promised, this son he promised, must be God himself in the flesh. And Paul says he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That's the first place you see that Jesus is the God who made us. But also in verse 19 you read this. Paul says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what you see in verse 19 is this, is that Jesus is one of three who's who make up the one what. All right? Now that, that you're like, what in the world? Has he, has he lost his mind? One of the three who's who make up the one what. It's the language of the Trinity that Christians historically have held that God exists as three persons in one essence. There is one what, there is one God and there is no other, but he is, he is, he has always existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What he is not saying is that every, all of God was in Jesus, but all that is God was in Jesus, all of his character, all of his attributes, all of his divine nature, everything that makes God God was revealed in Jesus Christ. So while the Son is not the Father and the Son is not the Spirit, the Son shows us everything that we need to see. He is the image of the invisible God and everything, the attributes, character, and nature of God are shown to us through Jesus Christ as God has clothed himself in flesh. 
And then finally, in this, in this text, you see not only is Jesus one of the three who's who make up the one what, and that he is the definitive picture of God, but you also see that he is the source of everything that is. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Now let me stop right there for a moment, because when the ancient authors say on heaven and on earth, what are they talking about? Are they talking about just two separate realms? It's not exactly what they're trying to say. If you think about uh, the, way that you would, the way that they're communicating here, they're saying everything in heaven and everything on earth. Now what lies between heaven and earth? Everything that is, right? Everything that is. The heavens even, looking up at the stars and the host of them in the night sky and everything that you touch, taste, see, and feel here on this earth. What lies between those two things? Those two places, everything that exists. So the Apostle Paul is saying everything that is has its source. It all came to be through Jesus. He is the agent or the source of creation. He is the definitive picture of God. And he is, he is in the very essence of God. Made flesh. That Jesus is the God who made us. He is God. Now some of you are just scratching, you're sitting there for a moment thinking like, well, so what? Right? Maybe I've heard all these things all of my life. What difference do they make? Let me give you two things. Let's push this in two ways. And the first one is this. It means that you cannot find God apart from him. You cannot find God apart. If you're here this morning searching for God, you're searching for ultimate reality, you're searching for the truth by which everything in the world is held together, that you cannot find God by going around Jesus. The only way you can find God is by going through him. You cannot find God apart from him. Listen, back in the, in the late 1800s, there was a, a, the World's Fair was held in Chicago. And they had there in Chicago, there was all the, the latest technology and inventions, you know, like wheels um, back then. Like, that was a bad joke. Um, and so, so you had all this latest technology and invent, all these inventors who, who kind of descended upon Chicago. And one of the other things they had there in the city of Chicago in conjunction with the World's Fair was what they called the Parliament of Religions. The Parliament of Religions. Now the Parliament is the kind of grueling body of England, um, it just sounds better than House of Religions or Senate of Religions, but the Parliament of Religions. So they had representatives from all the major religions in the world who descended upon Chicago with, with the attempt of everyone bringing what they had to the table and trying to construct perhaps a new kind of world religion. And there's a great evangelist in that day called, his name was D.L. Moody. And Moody said, this is a prime opportunity prime opportunity and what he didn't do was attack all the other world religions but he showed how supreme and amazing and majestic and mighty Jesus was in comparison to all the others see if you're here this morning and you're searching for Jesus Jesus is not found in a parliament of religions where you bring the Buddhist to the table and you bring the Mormon to the table and you bring the Jehovah's Witness to the table and you bring the Muslim to the table and you bring the Christian to the table and you bring you know the representatives from Confucianism to the table and you bring all these Eastern philosophies to the table and you just kind of work through all those things and you take the best pieces of each one and you kind of begin to work them out in your life that is that is what what Paul says here doesn't allow for that 
doesn't allow for that. That if you're looking for God, you cannot look for Jesus plus anything. Because Jesus plus anything that you try and add to him is nothing. While Jesus plus nothing is everything. It's everything. So if you're looking for God, you cannot find him apart from or around, by going around Jesus, but only by going through him. But the second thing this this means for us as we press this a little bit further is this. Is that if what Paul says here is true, that Jesus is this one who is prophesied and predicted, that he is God in the flesh, that he's the image of God, that he's the one through whom all things were made, and he is a part of the eternal, eternal person of God and, this, and the very Son of God, then it means that you can keep nothing from him. You can keep nothing from him. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 15. He says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Some of your translations say of all creation. The firstborn of or the firstborn over all creation. Now, when we read that, initially we think that what what Paul must be talking about there is that Jesus is the first created thing or the first created being, the first one to come into existence whenever God began to create. But that's not what Paul's talking about here because in Paul's day, there was a law on the books in the Roman Empire that delegated all authority, all privileges, all responsibility, and all rights to the eldest male of the family. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he's not talking about Jesus being the first created being like Jehovah's Witness believe, but rather what he's talking about here is this, is that Jesus is the one who possesses all rights and all privileges and all authority as, as the firstborn would have in a Roman family in Paul's day. That Jesus is in the position of the firstborn. So he has all authority over everything that has, does, or ever will exist. And it means that he has the right to do as he desires with all that he has made. And this means that we can, one of the things this means for you and I is that it means we can keep nothing from him. See, if you take all this together, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through Jesus, everything that is came to be. And Jesus has the authority over everything that is. Then one thing becomes clear. At least one thing becomes clear for us is this. So the only rational response to this Jesus that Paul paints a picture of here as God in the flesh. The only rational response to the weight of these truths is that Jesus cannot reside at the end of a list or the edge of your life. He cannot. If it's true, then Jesus demands and deserves to have the highest place and the most central position in your life. So that everything that you do is filtered through him. All of your choices and decisions ultimately are made by him. He's the filter through which all that passes. And, and one of the things that means for you and I is that if we come to Jesus for salvation, if we finally throw up our hands and we shred our spiritual resume and quit trying to impress God, but we come to him as humble, broken beggars who are pleading for his grace, if we come to him for salvation, then one of the things that means is that there can no longer be any non-negotiables in your life. 
You can't keep things from him. If he has authority over everything, the firstborn over all creation, that doesn't just mean all the plants and rocks and animals. That means me and that means you. And there's nothing that we can hold back from him, nothing that we can keep from him, nothing that can stay as a non-negotiable in our lives. And so many of us have been trying to kind of have that, that negotiating chip with God all of our lives. Where we say, well, God, I, I've, I've, I've kind of, you've come this far, but no further, Jesus. I'm not going to let you take any more ground in my life. Right? Isn't it enough that I show up once a week on Sunday? Like, that's, that's I've, I've given you Sunday mornings. Maybe I even go to a life group and I, I, maybe I, I showed up on Sunday nights or on Tuesday nights or on Thursday nights. Maybe I even write a check once a month and put it in the, in the box or give online. What else, could you, what else could you want from me, Jesus? And so we're negotiating. Well, God, I give so I don't have to serve. Or God, I serve so I don't have to give. Right? And so we're trying to play this negotiating game with Jesus. But if Jesus really is who he says he is, who Paul shows him to be in Colossians chapter 1, then there's no longer any non-negotiables that we can keep back from him, that we can't have what all of us probably really want sometimes is a, we can't have a non-invasive Jesus. Listen, we're at the end of the, of the calendar year here, and most of our insurance plans are about to roll over in 2017. And so our deductibles, right, that, that magic number that we've all got to hit in order to get f- affordable health care afterwards, right? We've all hit that deductible. And so there's surgery centers across our nation where people are stacked up on top of each other trying to get in for all of their elective surgeries. And many of these surgeries in these surgery centers are what they call minimally invasive or non-invasive procedures, right? They used to be able to, used to, used to whenever they did surgery on you, man, they would cut you open from head to toe as they start digging through your body and, you know, moving organs around and stuff. Now they've got little scopes they just kind of put down in there with lasers and they, you know, shoot stuff in, in your body and it's all fixed magically somehow. It's minimally invasive or non-invasive. And in and, and, and our heart of hearts, oftentimes what we want from Jesus is for him to be minimally or non-invasive. We want to negotiate with him where we kind of retain control, but we get all the benefits that he offers. But if what Paul says here is true, then you can't have a minimally invasive Jesus. Then he, if what he says true is here, to have a minimally or non-invasive in Jesus is completely irrational. To look at the one who's created everything and say, I know better how my life should work than you do. I know what will be more fulfilling for me than you do. It's completely irrational. But what Jesus deserves and demands is an all-access pass to your life. As the one who made you, has authority over you, and the one who shows God to you. All-access pass. We may not make it to the second point this morning. That's going to be okay. But what, let me push on this just for another two minutes. So, so you go, how do I respond to this? If I realize I've been trying to negotiate with Jesus all my life, I've wanted a kind of a minimally invasive Jesus all my life, how do I respond to this? Here's how you respond to it. You respond to it by uncapping your yes to him. By uncapping your yes to him. See, some of us have our yes to God or to Jesus capped. Right? We've said Jesus this far and no further. Some of us need to unscrew that cap or blast through it this morning. When my parents uh, bought their home, 
down in South Louisiana, uh, when they first bought it, they bought it and it was surrounded by nothing but rice fields. That's what they grill in South Louisiana. So it was surrounded by nothing but rice fields. And as the development of the city pushed further and further and further south, um, now they're surrounded by apartment complexes and patio homes and, um, you know, grocery stores and convenience stores and all kinds of developments taking place. And one of the things in that development process that happened was the city came in and they installed city water and city sewer. And when they installed city water and city sewer, my parents determined that they were forced to connect to it. And so whenever they connected to it, they, before they had city water, they had a well in the backyard. And whenever they connected to the city water, they went ahead and capped over the well. They laid a, poured a cement cap over that well so that myself or my younger brother wouldn't find ourselves at the bottom of that well one day. Or one of the neighborhood kids wouldn't find ourselves at the bottom of the well. But they capped off the well for the, our protection or for our safety. Now, one of the results of that was that they, they covered over access to the life-giving, nourishing waters that lie beneath the surface. So you can no longer get down to that water. You can no longer draw that water up and utilize that water, even to water the yard or to drink. Because the well was covered over. It had a massive cement cap laid on top of it. And some of us find ourselves in that exact position in our relationship with God where our yes to him has been capped. And we think that it's for our safety. We think that it's for our protection. We think that we're trying to preserve something. But what we don't realize is that by capping our yes to God and saying, God, you can have one hour on Sunday, but you can't have Friday night. Or God, you can have these relationships, God, but you can't have this relationship that I've been in that's unhealthy and destroying me. Or God, you can have, right? we keep playing this negotiating game with God and the Holy Spirit's tapping on those very areas sometimes that we have capped over and we've said no to God and we've pushed back from the table and he's tapping on that and what he's waiting for is for us what he's waiting for us is, is to eventually break and crater to see that what we have been denying ourselves is the very life that we've longed for. By saying, this far, no further, God. And our yes to him has been capped. And one of the ways you know that your yes to God has been capped, the God who made you, one of the ways you know that you've capped your yes to him and you may have to go ask somebody else who knows you really well because sometimes it's hard when you look in the mirror to see this for yourself. You have to go ask somebody else who knows you really well and say, hey, where are the attitudes and the actions, the beliefs and the behaviors in my life that are inconsistent with who I am in Christ? Where, where, where do you see those things? I was at home, when I was at home over Thanksgiving visiting family, I decided Thursday morning, I, no guilt Thanksgiving, I was going to go for a run before Thanksgiving, like before you eat enough calories in one meal to, to get you through for like three days. I was going to go for a run before. So I get up, get up Thursday morning, put on my running shoes, put on my clothes, head out the door, and I'm just kind of running down an old route I used to run when I was in high school. I uh, wasn't really paying much attention until I turn a corner, and at the end of the road I see um, a figure good ways away, probably 150, 200 yards away, and I see this cloud of smoke around their head. I think somebody's out for a walk, and, um, and so as I get closer, I realize it's a young lady who's dressed in running shoes and running tights and running shirt, 
and she's jogging with an e-cig in her hand, and, uh, right? And she's just cruising along, right? And every once in a while, right? She's cruising along. And I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> like, I've known lots of people who said they run to eat. But I, I don't, this is probably the first person I've ever met who, said, who would think that they run to vape. Okay? And, and as, I, as I ran along there, I thought, what is... What is that's an interesting picture, right? Because here's everything else about her, shoes, pants, shirt, the activities she was engaged in, all of it was moving in one direction, but there was something else that she was holding on to that was moving in another. And that's where some of us find ourselves this morning. We have an area of our life that we have capped off. There's a cement plug over it. And as a result, we find our soul has been shriveling because we're holding on to attitudes and actions, beliefs and behaviors that are inconsistent with who God has made us in Christ and how he wants to remake us in his image. If Jesus is the God who made us, then nothing is out of bounds, nothing is off limits, there is nothing we can keep from him. Uncap your yes. The second big thing this text teaches us, and we've got a little bit of time this morning, but I don't, I don't want to run past it. The second thing this text teaches us is this, is that not only is Jesus the God who made us, but he's also, Jesus has the might to save us. He has the might to save us. See, in Isaiah chapter 9, whenever he speaks of Jesus being mighty God, those two characterizations of who this one who would be, this son would be, who this child would be, he is God in the flesh, the image of the invisible God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He has made all things. He is the firstborn over all creation. He rules and reigns everything. So nothing is off limits to him in our lives. But not only is he God, but he's mighty God. And when that term mighty shows up in the rest of the Old Testament, most often and frequently it's referring to God's might to save. For instance, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, we find this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you over you with loud singing. In the prophets, we speak of God's might to save us, to save his people. In the writings, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8, whenever Moses is speaking about God, there wasn't the fact that the people of Israel were more impressive or more in number than all the peoples of the other nations that God chose them. But he says in Deuteronomy 7, 8, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of of slavery from the hand of the Pharaoh king of Egypt his might to save his hand is mighty Psalm 74 verses 12 and 13 speak of God my king being from of old working salvation in the midst of the earth how did he say verse 13 you divided the sea by your might you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters how did God save his people he divided the sea and parted it by the might of his hand to rescue his people over and over and over again in the old testament when the concept of God being mighty shows up it's in reference to his mightiness to save and here in Colossians chapter 1 in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him 
to reconcile all to himself all things, whether on, heaven, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not only does Paul present Jesus as God, but as the one who is mighty to save and reconcile by taking this estranged relationship that all humanity had with God on account of their sin and bridging that gap and reconciling us to God. How? At the cross. At the cross. That he would go to the cross and that he would be beaten and scorned. That he would be struck down, that he would bleed for us. So not only is Jesus the God who made us, but Jesus is the one who has the might to save us. He has the might to save us. And as we saw earlier, there is nothing, because he is the God who made you, there is nothing that is off the table for him. There's nothing that we can keep from him. But what you need to see here is that because Jesus has the might to save you, there is nothing that can keep him from you. There's nothing that, see some of you are in the room this morning, you're thinking, well, if you, only, if you only knew my past, if you only knew my history, if you only knew the things that I thought, the places that I went, the things that I did, if you only knew my track record in this, my third marriage, if you only knew, if you only knew. But what I want you to hear this morning is this, is that there's nothing that can keep this God who is mighty to save from you. There may be lots of things that would keep you from him, but there is nothing that can keep him from you. Nothing. No matter what your history looks like, no matter what your track record looks like, there is no case too severe for Jesus to heal. There is no life too far gone for Jesus to bring back, no child too rebellious For Jesus to woo and turn their heart, there is no sin big enough to overshadow or overpower the blood of his cross. There is nothing that can keep him from you. You can't outweigh the patience of Jesus. There was a lady who showed up in the service a few weeks ago and she said, you're going to have to be very patient with me. I'm not even sure if all this Christianity stuff is real. I'm not even sure if the Bible is true. She's going to have to be very patient. And I said, well, we're happy to be very patient because you can't outweigh the patience of Jesus. You can't outsend the grace of Jesus. And you can't outrun the reach of Jesus. There is nothing that can keep him from you. And while Jesus deserves and demands everything from us, I want you to know he's also bankrupted the heavens to give everything to us. He has spared no expense to cover our debt to God. And as we close this morning, what I want you to see is this, is that the reason that there is nothing that you can keep from him is because though he was high and exalted in holiness, he came low in humility. He came low in humility. And so while he is exalted and he does and he rules and he reigns, he came down the stairs to us. At the end of, some of you heard me use this illustration before, but at the end of the live action remake of, in 2015 of Walt Disney's Cinderella, yes, I, I, did, I did watch it with my kids. My daughter was five, right? But at the end of that movie, 
as the story unfolds and the, and the prince, who is now the king, is out, is, is out searching the kingdom looking for the young lady whose foot would fit this slipper. And he comes upon Cinderella's home. And after he recognizes that there is one damsel in the kingdom left who is locked in the tower the guards bring her down and she comes to walk before the prince who is now the king the narrator kicks in and he begins to narrate this scene and when the first time I saw this scene I, I, I literally almost cried as I saw the scene I know it's a little amusing but Cinderella in this scene as she approaches the king she comes to him as she really was. There's no longer any magic for her. There's no longer any ball gown. There's rather a simple servant's dress that's tattered and torn, even stained. And at this point, the narrator kicks in with this penetrating question, and he asks this, would who she was, who she really was, would it be enough? He says there was no magic to help her this time. This is perhaps the greatest risk any of us will ever take, he says, to be seen as we truly are. And as she turns the corner and faces the prince, and the prince says, who are you? And Cinderella responds, I am no princess, and I have no carriage. No parents, no dowry. I don't even know if that slipper will fit, but if it will, will you take me as I am? In other words, she said, I have nothing to offer you. Nothing to offer you but will you take me as I am? And the prince responds by saying, of course I will, but only if you will take me as I am. An apprentice who's still learning his trade. And the first time I watched the movie and he got to that point and he said, an apprentice who's still learning his trade, I was like, that's it. Illustration ruined because Jesus is not an apprentice who's learning any trade. But after I reflected on that later on that evening, it struck me to the core that here was the king who was dripping with humility. Dripping with humility. And I, tell, I stand before you this morning to say this to you, that if you, if you will take him as he is, as the God-made flesh, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn over all creation, who rules even over your life, if you will take him as he is, as the one through whom all things were created, if you will take him as he is, he will by all means take you as you are. Because he is a king who is dripping with humility. So why in the world would you not uncap your yes to him? He is mighty God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we come hearts filled with gratitude for the grace you've shown us in your son, the Lord Jesus. There is none like him, none who compares to him. There's no power on the face of this earth that is parallel to him. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to see a glimpse of 
Just a, just a glimpse of who he is. That those words that Paul uses to describe this mighty God, they would resonate in our hearts this whole season so that Christmas would not be about sentiment and, and, and coziness and a warmth of heart, but it would be about a change of heart for us. That the caps on our yes to you would be, would be blown sky high by the dynamite of your grace. And that we would hold nothing back. Father, this morning, may, may you continue your work in us as we sing together, as we celebrate the work of Jesus. And maybe even in this moment, God, may you be continuing to lay the explosives at the mouth of the well. So that we might find life as you intended. We pray this in Jesus' name.